This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So, do you ever think about brands? Not like which brand of paper towels to buy, but the brands themselves, and how much they, and the jingles, ads, and other marketing detritus associated with them, have penetrated the thick underbrush of your mind. Brands, in fact, like these. Between me and my cousins. Hey, Kool-Aid! Love is child's play. Once you've got an obsession, Calvin Klein's obsession. Ah, oh, smell You can give your youngsters a lot of pleasure with Kool-Aid. You know it's pure and good. It has the Parents Magazine seal. But as much as brand names and brand identities are in our lives and stuck in our heads, they are not in the public domain. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about what that means, especially for artists, activists, and others who might want to do something called anti-branding. That's taking recognizable trademarks, slogans, jingles, or whatever, and changing their meanings. My guest on the show today is Sonia Kachal. Kachal is an associate professor of law at Fordham, and she's working on a book right now about anti-branding. That book looks at the relationship between art, advertising, and intellectual property. We spoke in her office about branding, anti-branding, and what groups like Adbusters are doing when they mess with those all-too-familiar logos and slogans. Sonia Kachal, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having me as well. Now, tell me the story of the brand as you tell it in this book. The brand is something that really emerged around the turn of the century, um, where advertisements moved from a medium that was primarily verbal in the sense that advertisements described a product to something that was much more visual in the sense that uh, companies began to become more aware that in order to connect to the consumer, they had to create an image and a personality that spoke to the consumer. And so that's really around the time that you see a number of pretty famous icons emerging. Um, one of the most famous ones would be Aunt Jemima, which was actually the first time that um, a company hired a person to personify a living brand, being the Aunt Jemima brand. Aunt Jemima actually emerged uh, right around um, the late 1800s, where a company uh, basically decided that in order to really connect to consumers, I mean, they, they wanted to come up with a particular product that everyone in America would connect with. And so they decided on pancakes being the one thing that people in America ate for breakfast, and also connected with images of childhood and sort of, you know, memories of uh, home cooking and things like that. And so the inventor of the Aunt Jemima trademark uh, tells a story where he was basically in the audience at a minstrel show in the late 1800s. And at the time, one of the songs that was being performed was a song called Aunt Jemima. And it was two individuals that were basically in blackface. They dressed up like African-American women, and uh, they impersonated the image of uh, Southern, um, the sort of stereotypical Southern mammy. And 
sitting in the audience, the inventor uh, or the creator of the trademark realized that this was an image that he was really looking for, and it was an image that he could use to sell his product to the American public. And, you know, this really emerged around the time that a number of minorities, a number of African-American individuals and Native American individuals were really being used to sort of appeal to a particular type of consumer. Um, I think marketing was very characterized by a particularly not a view that was meant to be as overtly racist as now time has revealed it to be. So you have Aunt Jemima being one of the first brands and you have sort of the beginnings of branding. Tell me the story of how we've gotten to the point where we are now. So much of our public consciousness, so much of our language is, in fact, permeated with the existence of brands. Every day, we come into contact with different brands, either through product placement. Um, I was just reading about how Sex in the City, the new movie that's coming out, is filled with product placement of luxury brands. But I also think that there's a way in which we now think in terms of brands, right? The term Barbie or the term Barbie doll means something in our ordinary cultural consciousness that hasn't always been connected to the existence of a plastic blonde doll, right? It's, it signifies a particular kind of personality. As brands become more and more a part of our public language, there's more and more space for us to use brands uh, to express certain things. And as advertising becomes more and more prevalent in terms of how we look at the world and how we think about the world, advertising becomes also part of our language that not just corporations can use, but also uh, consumers can use on the internet and through technology, through YouTube, to actually reverse the power that a brand might have originally had without the use of that technology. You talk in your book about sort of the infusion of branding into previously non-commercial spheres. Tell me what you mean by that and what's worrisome about it in your opinion. Part of the reason why I find the existence and the and the sort of eventual um, move of brands from a world that is purely commercial into a world that's a lot harder to draw the lines um, between commercial and non-commercial stems from um, the increasing prevalence of things like product placement. Um, you see product placement everywhere. You see it in video games. You see it on television. You see it in movies. Um, and the problem with that is that we live in a culture where we are so focused on finding, as marketers and as advertisers, look for different ways to kind of appeal to a consumer. They also look for ways to appeal to a consumer in ways that are often very non-commercial, in often ways that blur the lines between commercial and non-commercial speech. And this is something that is worrying not just for me as a consumer, right, in the sense that I'm trying to figure out now whether a certain celebrity gets paid to endorse a certain brand or actually does prefer to wear a certain brand. But it's also worrisome because I genuinely think that our First Amendment kind of constitutional ways of thinking about freedom of speech 
are premised on a real division between commercial and non-commercial speech. So the more that we blur those divisions, the harder it becomes to figure out how to govern these codes of speech. Um, traditionally, commercial advertising gets a lot more uh, regulation than other forms of, of speech, than other forms of political speech. But it becomes pretty hard for us to draw lines between commercial and non-commercial in an age of product placement and stealth marketing. One thing that um, people have talked a lot about is a diminishment of quality of life in the age of branding. Do you talk about that? Are you interested in that? I think what is so interesting is that branding suggests to us uh, that you can actually increase your quality of life, right? If you associate with certain brands, if you buy certain products, if you live the live out the images that companies want you to live out. What I find particularly interesting is the way in which a lot of those things wind up in some ways removing us from a real vision of the good life, right? A vision of the good life that is kind of free from advertisements, free from brands, and free from kind of commercial associations. And so, yeah, I, I do worry about that. And I worry about it particularly in terms of freedom of speech, um, in terms of, you know, as we live in an age where brands take more and more control or presence in our public consciousness, we also see the possibility of companies using their intellectual property to kind of silence discussion or to affect discussion in a negative way um, by, in some ways, silencing the voice of a lot of um, different consumers and artists and activists. And that's what I find particularly worrisome. Jemima pancakes without her stirrup is like the spring without the fall. You are listening There's to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today with legal scholar Sonia Kachal about the legal issues associated with branding and anti-branding. Kachal is an associate professor of law at Fordham, and she's recently been awarded a grant by the Andy Warhol Foundation for work on her book, Anti-Branding. In that book, she talks about the development of brands and how artists and activists have used well-known brand signifiers for purposes other than marketing. She also talks about the legal ramifications of anti-branding as what's advertising and what's not becomes a more fluid distinction than it once was. Let's return now to that conversation. I asked Kachal about an idea I'd seen in her work, the idea that the brand has replaced the product as the thing that companies are now looking to sell. In general, the idea of the brand is something that I think has really reversed the function of products in the sense that um, now people purchase not solely because of the product that they're buying. They purchase because of the association that they get out of a particular brand. And so in some ways, it becomes less important for advertisements to list the attributes of a particular product. Rather, it becomes more important for advertisers to list the images and associations that we make when we view particular brands, right? So if I'm thinking about buying a piece of athletic gear, I might choose to buy something that's branded with Nike because of the associations that Nike produces. And so those are the kinds of things that I think we see more and more of, where the product becomes a lot less important, right? I mean, if we think about car commercials, car commercials nowadays 
are so much less focused on the attributes of a particular car than they are on the associations that one makes when they buy a particular car. And so I think that there's a way in which it becomes less important for companies to think about the products that they produce. And it might become more important for them to think about the images and the associations that they make through their advertising as a way of connecting with consumers. There's a way in which the emotional appeal to consumers has never been stronger. It seems to me like the sort of lifestyle brand idea has been around for a while. I I remember cigarettes used to use it pretty heavily, um, and cars have always used it. What is different now from how it used to be? I think that as the opportunities for advertising through new media, both in terms of online work as well as in terms of real life, as those opportunities have exploded and multiplied, we see more and more of a need for advertisers to figure out new ways of connecting with consumers. And so what that means is that not only do they have to multiply the messages that they're sending in terms of how they connect to consumers, they also have to multiply the different platforms that they utilize to connect with consumers. So something that seemed relatively straightforward, like a print magazine or something like that, has now turned out to be something where, you know, not only is it important to do print, it's also important to do online media, it's also important to figure out ways of doing smart and interesting product placement, maybe some stealth marketing. There are all sorts of different ways in which um, companies are now forced to really consider a whole range of diverse ways that they might choose to engage in brand. And I do think that that in some ways makes the message more, it makes it harder and harder to connect to the consumer, which makes it more and more important for them to utilize kind of an emotional sort of trajectory in terms of their messages. One thing that stood out for me um, when I was looking at your book was um, somebody from Nike saying that it's primarily a marketing company that happens to make shoes. Yeah, um, I think that again, this is this is another way in which the the phenomenon of branding becomes so much more important than the products we buy. And you know what that means is that advertisers hold a tremendous degree of control over not only just the images that they produce, but also the images that we take in. Right? Um, you know. It now becomes, in order for us to construct our own identities, we construct our own identities by buying and purchasing or not purchasing particular brands. And so I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, companies like Nike have moved into a world where they're selling you um, a world. They're selling you a world that they want you to believe you can be a part of if you purchase their products. Moving on to, I think, your principal interest, which is the idea of the anti-brand. Tell me about the rise of the anti-brand and tell me what anti-branding is. Sure. Um, Anti-branding is really a term that I think came up pretty recently. And what it's really about is the idea of figuring out a way to kind of reverse and also um, in some ways kind of hijack the power of branding. So what I do in the book is really describe how a number of artists and a number of activists have really been able to utilize the power of technology and digital media to figure out ways that they can recreate 
images and brands to criticize something, to criticize something about society. It might be something about the company itself. Um, Certainly, uh, Nike is often quite vulnerable to a lot of anti-brands, but it could also be used to uh, criticize something else that might be circulating within society. And so the term anti-branding really refers to the way in which artists and activists have been able to kind of take out the meaning from particular brands and insert their own images of what they want the world to look like or what they, what they feel like is an important critique to make. Now, obviously, since this is a radio show, people can't look at pictures. Tell me what some of the more well-known brands and anti-brands might be. Anti-branding is something that I think has been going on for years. Um, In some ways, the origins of anti-branding really happened, I think, probably earlier than this point. But this is one of the more dramatic points was in the late 1960s in Paris, um, where there was an art movement called the Situationist Movement. And what the Situationist basically did was they took... Um, pieces of art and they really changed them and they addressed them and they altered them in all sorts of different ways that were sort of surprising to the French public. And what it was really about was the idea of taking an image and resisting it by changing it. And that phenomenon is something that has continued throughout time. We see it in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. We have seen it in the 1970s through a whole variety of different types of movements, particularly the gay rights movement, um, which in many ways was known for taking the famous kind of pink triangle that was used um, as a symbol of homosexuality during the Holocaust and reversing it and making it something that was originally a great marker of, of great pain into something that now stands for a movement, you know, a presence. Um, ACT UP was the was the organization that was known for uh, anti-branding the pink triangle. And so we see a lot of different examples of this. I define anti-branding pretty broadly to capture the way in which individual activists have been able to reverse the power of the symbol. And it goes on now even today. Um, Certainly Nike, as I mentioned, is one of the more Uh, one of the more vulnerable targets. But all you need to do is basically go on the Adbusters website and look at their spoof ads, and you will see a whole variety of great ways in which companies like Calvin Klein, the Camel Tobacco Company, Marlboro, lots of different companies have been anti-branded. And I think that what that basically does is it creates a world where brands now become open for meaning, right? It's not just the meaning that the company forces you or wants you to believe, it actually turns out to be a meaning that you yourself as the consumer or the activist can kind of recreate. You say that we all engage in anti-branding all the time, even if we're not aware of it. What do you mean by that? What I mean by uh, the fact that we all engage in anti-branding all the time is that Every day we make decisions based on brands, right? Um, Those of us who think of ourselves as pretty aware consumers think a lot about the choices that companies make. I think a lot about how companies treat their employees. Um, I think a lot about whether or not companies have domestic partnership. I think a lot about the choices, the political choices that companies make. And that, in many ways, has made me a pretty, I think, a pretty informed consumer. And 
I think a number of individuals in urban centers and also rural ones are trying to figure out a lot more about the corporate practices of the companies that they purchase products from. And that that leads us to a world where we're doing something more than just taking in the meanings or the advertisements that companies provide to us. And what we're doing is kind of looking underneath the surface, really trying to explore whether or not we are going to basically just adhere to the kinds of narratives that companies provide or whether we're going to make our own choices, right? I mean, certainly, you know, we live in a world where we are routinely subjected to commercials featuring oil companies that are going green, right? Tobacco companies that are encouraging you to limit your smoking intake. I mean, there are lots of different messages that we get. But there's something about how consumers nowadays think about the brands that they're associated with in far more political ways than they might have been in previous years. And so that's what I think makes me think that we all engage in anti-branding, even if we're not sitting there recreating a logo or repainting a billboard. The fact that we make choices based on brands and based on the images that brands provide uh, makes me think that we are, in fact, more engaged in anti-branding than we think. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after this show, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. This week, a look at twins and photos of doppelgangers. That's ahead at 7.30. On Fordham Conversations this morning, we are talking about branding and anti-branding with Sonia Kachal. Kachal is an associate professor of law at Fordham, and her upcoming book, Anti-Branding, looks at the relationship between art advertising, and intellectual property. Let's hear the rest of our conversation. Now, you are a legal scholar, and you do look at this from a legal perspective. What are the legal issues involved here? One of the most powerful legal issues really comes up through the lens of intellectual property law, and that's primarily what I look at and what I write about and what I teach about. And intellectual property law is an area that particularly protects um, trademarks and copyrights. Trademarks are um, basically the symbols, logos, slogans, ads. Those are the kinds of things that are protected under trademark. Copyright protects things like musical compositions, literary compositions, pieces of art, and so on. And so when artists use symbols and logos in ways that companies might disagree with, that's when they're most vulnerable to uh, claims of trademark or copyright infringement. Are the courts protecting corporations to the detriment of individuals, and why might that be? You know, it's interesting. Initially, when the Internet sort of first came on the scene, you saw a number of decisions by courts and commentators um, that really suggested that they were a lot more protective of corporations. Um, Now the tide has shifted a little bit, and you have great decisions in the Ninth Circuit that really support the idea of fair use, and they really support the idea of um, allowing artists and activists access to the brands that they want to use to respond to. It's a little bit different 
in places other than the Ninth Circuit where courts haven't really advanced to such a level where they're really cognizant of the kind of freedom of speech implications um, of using intellectual property as a way of kind of silencing individuals. So, for example, um, you might see more and more situations where individual artists and activists might be targeted um, by different companies for their work. It is something that, in general, I would say the tide is slowly beginning to turn towards the artists and activists. The problem is that before something winds up in court, you usually have a number of different cease and desist letters, all of these different informal ways in which individual artists uh, get threats and wind up deciding not to pursue the case further. Now, you talk about anti-branding in a sort of, an, I would say, an optimistic way as being something that enables people to wield power against powerful brands. You say, I'm quoting you here, that there is an unspoken war between advertising and anti-advertising, between powerful corporations who own valuable brands, and between the artists and ordinary consumers who actively subvert them. Is that an excessive amount of power to give to individuals against corporation? Isn't there a big power differential between individuals and corporations that needs to be addressed? Yeah, there's certainly a, a pretty strong imbalance of power between an ordinary consumer or an activist or an artist uh, and a corporation. The thing that I think is really exciting about anti-branding, though, is that I think that when a corporation has been so successful at creating an image around their brand, it's almost necessary for them to recognize that that brand has now entered public consciousness and that there's a whole variety of different ways in which artists and activists can then take hold of that kind of public consciousness and change it or use it in ways that might be critical of corporations. I think that um, at the point, I mean, when you think about it, the labels that most often get targeted, Nike, Coca-Cola, Gap, all sorts of different um, tobacco companies, these are all corporations that are not only tremendously successful at what they do in terms of marketing products, they're also tremendously successful in creating an image around those products. And so it almost makes sense to restore the power balance by allowing consumers access to these brands and logos so that consumers can actually speak back to the images that they see. Is anti-branding part of a particular social movement? I wouldn't say that it's part of a social movement as much as I would say that it is a social movement. I think that it's a social movement that is multi-generational, it's multinational, it has taken place over so many different periods of time, and it's taken place in so many different kinds of, uh, of contexts. And it's the sort of thing where uh, I look forward um, as a scholar to seeing where anti-branding is uh, 10 or 20 years from now. What do you think of uh, criticisms that anti-branding and the kinds of things that adbusters and anti-globalists do is sort of just buying into the language of branding? I think that they do buy into the language of branding. And I think they buy into the language of branding solely for the idea of reversing it. I'm not saying that anti-branding is entirely 
always defensible or entirely unproblematic. Um, there are certainly probably aspects of anti-branding that I might find, that I might disagree with, right? Um, maybe some forms of vandalism, for example. Um, but I do think that there is this way of allowing anti-branding activists to reverse the channels of communication that corporations have been using for years. And that, I think, is a really powerful opening for opportunity. I'll ask you one more question and I'll close with this. If I'm a person who's not an artist and a person who does not work for a major corporation, if I'm just a normal person, why is anti-branding something that, that I should care about? I think that what is important, I'm not an artist and really not an activist either. What I am is somebody who is really interested in looking at social movements and how social movements affect the shifts within law governing property. I think that what is so exciting about this moment in marketing and in branding is that anti-branding opens up the possibility for us to think really, really, really broadly about the way in which we use and wear logos. One of the things that I think has been happening more and more, and it's certainly happening on the underground, but you see it happening, more and more individuals feel more comfortable taking those logos, chopping them up, changing them, making slash signs through them, and then wearing the t-shirts, right? And wearing different ways that we might really not just engage in anti-branding, but we also might use anti-branding as a medium that kind of forces people to think really critically about the images that they're being marketed to. And, you know, sometimes you see teenagers doing this when they kind of take logos and, you know, take apart logos and recreate them. But I do think that there's a certain aspect to that that's really deeply political. And not only is it really deeply political, but I think it reclaims, um, the notion of citizen participation in a completely different framework. It reclaims the notion of citizen participation in a way that allows the everyday consumer to engage in anti-branding. And I, that's why I think it's really exciting. We all, not only do we all engage in anti-branding every day, but we all can engage in anti-branding. Well, Sonia Kachal is a professor at Fordham Law School, and her upcoming book is Anti-Branding. Sonia, thanks so much for talking with me. It was a real pleasure to meet you, Nora. Thanks so much. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks so much for listening and have a fabulous weekend.